Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And I'll tell you, it's probably about once a week that I get a direct message or a phone call or a crisis text from someone who has a loved one who is in deep need of mental health care. Oftentimes, it's the person themselves who's asking for care, but they're frustrated by not being able to find a provider who has an opening, by not being able to match a provider with their insurance, or the interminably long waits for care. The prevalence of mental health conditions in the United States is still something that I'm deeply concerned about, and the lack of access to care is why I wanted to talk with Dr. Jim Polo today about what we could do in terms of showcasing the digital options that are available for people, because it is going to help not just with the availability to care, but also with the incredible cost stigma that is related to psychological care. Dr. Polo, it's so good to see you today. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you too, Sheila. I just want to sort of lay the groundwork for my experience in um, talking with people, especially over the last three years, is it seems like the number of people who are asking me to help them find mental health care has just totally exploded. What's happening? I mean, I know that the numbers globally are really, really uh, profoundly impacting provider's ability to get help out. But what is happening in your view? The crisis in behavioral health has actually been around for a long time. You know, Mm. we've had a challenge with shortage of providers, people having difficulty getting in to be seen. And one of the reasons why I think that wasn't necessarily as obvious was because stigma played a huge role in in, in pushing people not to want to talk about it. Yeah. And so even if they had a need asking for help, was was somehow uh, not so good. People do, don't want to kind of share that they might be struggling in some way emotionally. You know, they look at it differently. They see themselves as being defective. Yeah. And I think what happened was the pandemic did two things. First of all, it put everybody pretty much globally through a long period of significant stress, anxiety related to this pandemic. Yeah. So much so that it began to wear on people's emotional well-being. Yep. And because it was so widespread, more and more folks began talking about it. But now they could give a reason to why they might be struggling. Hey, I'm anxious because of all this pandemic stuff. Not a defect. It's this pandemic stuff. So in some yeah. ways, the pandemic helped us normalize the fact that when life is full of stressors, in this case, the pandemic, it's pretty normal to have difficulties. Mm-hmm. And if you have difficulties, you should ask for help. Now, the reality is that the pandemic will at some point stabilize. And I say stabilize because, of course, COVID is going nowhere. Yeah. But there are many other issues that create anxiety and stress for which the very same concept of seeking help is going to be important. And I'm hoping that if nothing else, the pandemic has helped us open the discussion more so that people actually can talk about it and get help. I was reading that, especially in child psychiatry, that for ever like 100 kids in need, there's one trained child psychiatrist. And for regular people, it's sort of like 25 to one in terms of just based on the huge number of people who say, I would like to get in with a practitioner, but I simply cannot. The numbers are astounding. So what's behind those numbers? Well, here's what I think is behind those numbers. First of all, like everything in society, when there's a demand, then the supply will come. So even though the demand and the need for services has been high, I think there's a lot of people that have hidden in the word work not wanting to get help. 
Uh-huh. And because uh-huh. of that, there hasn't been a need to have as many quote behavioral health providers because there wasn't that demand. And now we're reaching a point where the demand is so great. And unfortunately, it takes a long time to train behavioral health providers. It doesn't matter what level of behavioral health provider, right. not something you could just say, oh, today I'm going to do it. You've got to go through a long period of training. So we can't catch up now. We're right. not going to be able to train enough people. I love the community investment initiative, which is sort of training people within their own communities to be able to offer mental health assistance. It's not therapy, it's not guidance, but it is that assistance for people who are in crisis in their neighborhoods, at their community centers, at their churches. To me, that makes so much sense. Well, I think it makes a lot of sense because remember, when folks are struggling, it's not like everyone needs to see a psychiatrist. Right. Sometimes what you need is somebody that's going to listen critically and just be a support to you. Yeah. So there's all different kinds of levels of help that you can get when you're struggling. And so training folks for some of those issues right in a community can be very helpful because yeah. sometimes the issues that are going on aren't severe. They're right. they're just, you know, momentary in that moment of period of time that you're struggling with whatever the stressor happens to be. Yeah, I love just giving people the tip of you can sign up for a free mental health first aid class, which is amazing. You can take online courses that help you learn the lexicology, is that the word? Mm-hmm. Lexicon, lexicon. And just be able to feel a little bit more confident in when someone asks you, "Hey, I'm really struggling." What you say, right? Right, right. Well, we're actually probably at the early beginnings of a new world in terms of how technology is helping really change so many things about mental health. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those digital oriented solutions that we have going on. And I'll let you start with whatever category you're most excited about. (laughs) Well, I think the first thing that I would highlight is one of the things that the pandemic did is it kind of forced us to really advance and refine use of telehealth. Now, keep in mind that telehealth is simply a form of delivery. I can see somebody for counseling in person. That's a delivery perspective. Or I can see them online, maybe with a video link up and an audio link up, and that's a different delivery system. It's the in, in many cases, though, it will be the same treatment. And because of the pandemic, and because we wanted folks to stay home and not be near facilities, we moved in the direction of very rapidly adopting telehealth. Now, keep in mind, telehealth has been around for many, many, many years. And telehealth can be used for medical issues as well as behavioral health. It just so happens yeah. that in the mental health arena, grand majority of counseling that occurs doesn't actually require the provider to physically touch Touch. the patient. And so consequently, there's a lot that can be done. So the first technological advancement, which is not really new, but we've really expanded its use very quickly, is just the use of telehealth. Mm -hmm. How has that been for you, Dr. Polo, to, to be in a screen with people that you used to be able to see in person? So I have to tell you, I didn't warm to it initially. And I and 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 I have to be honest, I my initial experience with telehealth was actually in, in the late 1990s. Oh okay? wow. I've actually used telehealth for many, 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 many years. And at first I was kind of one of those folks that, no, this can't be the same. I mm. have to be in the same room. I have to see their expressions. I have to kind of see how they move. I mm. have to I've actually converted in the sense that there are 
technologies available now, kind of like the one that you and I are using, where you can see very clearly mm -hmm. what somebody else is, is expressing. Because remember, in behavioral health, those nonverbal cues can yeah. be important. Facial grimaces, right. the, the sly eye movement that can give you some information. So I have found that with many patients, not all, with many patients, I am as effective if I have a good, solid video connection where I can meet with them and, and do counseling. So I'm, I'm a firm believer. Now, there are times when it just doesn't work. Uh -huh. um, so I'll give you a very simple example. If you're doing therapy for a nine-year-old who's got ADHD and they're bouncing in and out of your Zoom screen because they can't keep still. I mean, it's yeah. very hard to do effective treatment in, in that circumstance. So it's not applicable all the time, Yeah, but, it's, but it is much of the time. And you know what? I I looked at NCBIA, that organization you all have to belong to, NCBM, mm -hmm. did a pretty mm -hmm. thorough study. And they found that people on the respondent side, 85% said it was as good or better. It saved them the cost of gas. It saved them the time to be able to sit in traffic to go see their provider. And it also allowed them not to have to pay for babysitters, which is so important when you're on a fixed income. Well, there's a couple more advantages. So for example, if you live in a rural community where there is no behavioral health provider anywhere near you, right. rather than having to drive 30 miles to the next town over, yeah, telehealth is a way of, of bridging that. The other thing is that sometimes specialists that treat very discrete areas are not available everywhere. And so you can sometimes access somebody maybe that is going to devote their efforts more to what you're struggling with that you can't find locally. There's a number of different ways. There, there are also people that argue that it feels more private. Hey, mm -hmm. I don't have to go out of my house and I'm not parked at that, you know, yeah. mental health clinic. No, nobody will see me. It's yeah. just me and the provider. And so some people feel it's a little bit more private as well. Yeah. What are some of the other digital uh, solutions that you're super excited about? So remember, uh, I'm glad we started with just the delivery system. But there's so many other technologies that are advancing. So the first thing I would say is um, there's a lot of apps out there that fall into a variety of different categories. One of the types of apps that is kind of exciting are the types of app that help people with behavioral health, mental health challenges, where there isn't another real person at the other end mm. of, of the connection. Mm. So applications that have been developed using artificial intelligence that mm -hmm. are based on cognitive behavioral principles, where you follow a 12-week program between you and your phone, and the program learns about you and actually adjusts as it's going through the program in such a way that you can, first of all, do it on your own time with your own cadence. You don't have somebody else at the other end, so you're not limited by lack of a provider. What I would say about these types of programs is that these are the types of digital applications that generally tend to be for folks that have more of the milder type conditions. You know, Happify, Wobot, yeah. Evolve. These are just names of companies that have specific areas that they help with. When it comes to an actual interface with another person, a lot of companies have also added different ways to do that. So we typically think of counseling as in-person yeah. And now we think about it as digital. A lot of companies have moved over where they, you can text. Yeah. And not only can you text, hey, I can text at nine in the morning, but the response that's going to come back might not come for two hours. Then I can text later at a different time. 
So in addition to how we use that communication channel, we're also changing how we use time, really kind of adjust to the way people now tend to want to communicate. I got to be honest, I'm not sure that I would be super comfortable texting back and forth in an asynchronous manner. If a person is in crisis or really feels that they're suffering, it feels so remote. It feels so like I've just laid this huge admission of vulnerability out there and somebody's not responding to me for two, three hours. I'm not sure. so, So this is a very, very important point. And actually many companies have accounted for this. Keep in mind that a lot of these newer technologies do require that folks have, you know, mild to moderate issues where there's no real crisis. A lot of the programs have been programmed in such a way that if there are certain words that are used, or certain things that are checked within the program that indicate that somebody is in crisis, then it triggers a cascade of actions with that individual immediate help. So that, for example, if you're uh, using Talkspace and you are on a texting route, but you happen to use the word suicide, that is going to flag the system and get attention diverted to it. And what what most of these uh, companies have is they have a pathway for when folks are in crisis, where do we send them? Where do we refer them? How do we connect them? You know, Dr. Polo, I'm thinking about so many kids under the age of 30 who have never really learned face-to-face skills. They're not great at even making eye contact, let alone sitting with a therapist and telling them their deepest feelings. So those options, especially for neurodivergent kids or kids who are really device oriented may be the first step toward them actually learning interpersonal skills. Yes, I do worry about that. I got to be honest, I see it in my own kids. They used to love email. Now they love texting. They don't have full sentences. They skip punctuation. They have a ton of abbreviations. So I do think there's something about using technology that has shaped the way that we communicate. Mm. And remember that ultimately communication between two people is more than just words. Yeah. It's about the connection. It's about the sense of how you understand everybody else through all of your senses, what you see, what you smell, what you hear, what you observe. Yeah. So I do think that we're going to have to struggle through and figure out how do we preserve those important parts of communication that are meaningful, even though we're using technology. I'm kind of excited about some of the wearables. Is that a category you wanted to talk about? Oh my gosh. That's super cool. So wearables have been around for a while. And of course, the most common ones are the, you know, the Fitbit watch that tells yeah. you what your heart rate is, et cetera, so on and so forth. Yeah. So, so first of all, one of the important things about sensor technology is that wearables allow that device to collect what's called passive data. So yeah. let's just use a simple example. Let's say you're somebody that has high blood pressure and you're wearing a Fitbit that measures your pressure. And let's say that the device is calibrated to measure your pressure every 15 minutes. It can collect all that data and at some point spit it all out on a computer screen and show you what the pattern is. So first of all, it can collect a lot of data, show patterns and keep it all organized. Now in the mental health arena, what's coming to be more uh, usable are mood trackers. Mm-hmm. And mood trackers come in all different kinds of approaches in terms of whether they're tracking your depression, anxiety. So, so for example, Worry Watch is a mood tracker that helps track how difficulty you're struggling with anxiety. Now, there's mm. some interface between you and the tracker. PTSD Coach is one that focuses on folks that might have PTSD. 
There is also a number of companies that are looking at, can we interpret behavioral health symptomology, Mm. mood from voice? So the sound of somebody's voice, how does that Mm. change when they're having emotional difficulties? Mm. Their use of the internet, how they change what they use, Mm. uh, how quickly they respond on a digital platform. So there's all different kinds of ways that the center technology can actually track human behavior, human emotion in such a way that that can be usable to help people. To your point about voice, because I was in radio and we often have the ability to watch our own waveforms. After my daughter was diagnosed with cancer, I had a very hard time getting my waveform to have any highs or lows. I was very monosyllabic. I was very monotone. As hard as I tried, as professional as I was, I could not force my voice to go beyond that deep depression that I felt because she was so sick. And so it makes total sense. Of course, they're going to be able to see that, right? And and one of the things about collecting all this data is remember, you might have a change in your voice with somebody who doesn't know you. So they don't really know there's a change there. But if we have a data system that's able to track this by individual The system itself, using artificial intelligence, can tell that individual, hey, this person is not at their norm. Yeah, super interesting. I'm a little concerned about companies doing wearables and tracking without fully telling people the extent of it. For instance, at one of the conferences I just attended, I was talking to a guy who they have a version of Slack that is Mm -hmm. uniquely trained to be looking for people who are having difficulty at work, who are feeling burned out, who are distressed, and they haven't actually told the people that this AI system is running in the background. Yes. it's all through Slack and this and the people who are on Slack and telling their best friend at work, hey, I, I hate that effing boss. I think I'm going to quit. It's actually kind of flagged. And I feel like there needs to be much more transparency around that. You know, it's really interesting. In behavioral health, we always talk about privacy at yeah. the same time that we kind of need transparency. Right. Um, yeah. Now, uh, one of the challenges is, first of all, anytime you're doing any kind of communication about healthcare through any kind of technological device, there are a number of requirements that are uh, legislatively you know, mandated in terms of how you protect health information. Yeah. If you're doing telehealth with uh, somebody as a patient, you have to use certain systems that have safeguards in place to make sure that that still remains personal and private. So the first thing is security is a huge issue. Yeah, right. Now, the second thing that I think becomes an issue, which is what you're talking about, is when data is being collected, is there some way of making sure it's going to be addressed? The other challenge is how do you make sure that all of this health information is integrated together. So let me give you a slightly different example. Let's say that I live in a rural area and my primary care doctor is in town and I see him once a year, but let's say maybe I have a specialist, uh, a state over that's, you know, treating my cancer or my other conditions. And let's say I have a behavioral health provider, a psychiatrist in in yet a different town. How do we make sure that all that information is coming together? Because these people obviously are not sitting in the same room and they're not in the clinic. Right. So how do we integrate this information to make sure that we're not duplicating, but also not at odds with each other? So lots of challenges in terms of how do we organize the data? How do we protect the data? And how do we make sure it's being used appropriately? 
Yeah, that's so good. Is there any other category of digital um, newfound breakthroughs that we need to cover? Well, there is. And uh, it's called digital therapeutics. Okay. okay. And digital therapeutics are a little bit different than just digital platforms. Okay? okay. So remember, if I use an app, let's say my phone, and I'm using it on Talkspace, I'm just using that as an example, then that's just an app where I'm communicating with another provider and I happen to be doing it very conveniently through my phone. Right. Uh, digital therapeutics are prescribed digital programs that will help you. Oh, great. So imagine, wow. imagine that uh, you come to see me, mm. you're struggling with insomnia. You, yeah. you can't sleep and you're hoping I'm going to prescribe you a medication. And mm -hmm. the problem is many of the medications that we use for sleep can sometimes be addictive. Okay? Or cause Alzheimer's or, and dementia. Or cause other problems totally. because you're yeah. now taking a medication. Yeah. So what if I had a program that I could prescribe evidence-based cool. that will help you sleep. Yeah, amazing. So Big Health is a company that's created a program called Sleepio. The treatment is following the program. It's a wow. digital application. That's so it's super cool. Therapeutic. That is super cool. I think these are going to probably grow. Obviously, there's a lot of research that needs to be done to make sure that these digital applications actually do what they say they're going to do. Mm-hmm. But the thing about it is when it comes to mental health, the number one thing that helps people is when they're engaged in their own treatment. Yeah. And so they believe in their own recovery, right? Well, you digital know? applications right. have a way of engaging you to look yeah. at yourself. And, yeah. and, and yeah. a lot of these companies are also gamifying their approaches to make it fun yeah. at the same time that it's it's really hard work. Yeah. Mark Brackett is a friend of mine from Yale. Are you familiar with his emotional intelligence app? He's yes. really done. Yes. It's a phenomenal tool. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, Mark, I'll check it out. It is so good. The videos that are additional information after you do all the journaling and the work that allows you to identify what emotion you're experiencing, the videos are so helpful. It's all CBT and ACT based, I think. Yes. Yes. And yes. I was really blown away by how thoughtful and helpful it was for me. Now, I've done the program. It's very unlikely I'll continue to use the program because I kind of know this stuff. But I'm thinking if I had, if somebody said, Sheila, every two weeks, there's a new thing for you to try, I'd be totally into it. So keep them coming, Dr. Polo. One of the things that is challenging is there are so many mental health applications that are coming out. Totally. You know, there's thousands, tens yep. of thousands of them. Yeah. My advice to the consumer is, hey, look, if you're using a digital application, do your research, talk with your primary care doctor. If you already have a, a mental health provider, talk with them, ask them what they think. Mm -hmm. How can you use that in coordination with everything else that you're you're doing? Yeah. To be honest, some, some digital applications may be very helpful for some people and not for others and vice mm. versa. Others helpful for those and, and so forth. Yeah. So it's a big world that's expanding with all this technological advance. I'll tell you, I was contacted by a maker of a device who wanted me to try it, which is a cap that you wear, which kind of delivers the same as transcranial magnetic stimulation remotely. And I was like, I want to know if this works or not, but I don't want to try it on my brain. <laughs> so if you happen to see any studies or know how that worked out for him, please let me know. <laughs> so I don't know about this particular device. What I can tell you is that TMS, transmagnetic stimulation, does work yeah. for some people. 
yeah. with certain diagnoses. Yeah. It is unfortunately a treatment modality that can be kind of expensive. And so it's yeah. a little bit cost prohibitive. It's most often used for people that have significant depression where they've yeah. been resistant to other forms of treatment. Yeah. A future, One day. A future I where know. if you're struggling, yeah. you can go get a device mm-hmm. that's you know FDA approved, whatever, yeah. and actually helps you. And Dr. Polo, honestly, with the breakthrough that they're having at Stanford with transcranial magnetic stimulation to be able to see the parts of the brains that have gone dormant and are really affected, then they would deliver those pulses right through that part on your cap. I mean, we may be able to one day wake up and go, okay, here's my blood pressure, my sensors, my blood count, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my count and stimulate my brain just where I need to. And then wouldn't that be so remarkable to know just a little bit more about what was making us tick? Yes. Yeah, yes. we're getting there. It's super exciting. There. Well, anytime that you hear of something you have to be like, Sheila, you'll think this is so cool. Know that I'll listen. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Take good care, Dr. Polo. Thank you, Sheila. And you have a wonderful day.